This is Gigawaters, the latest podcast series from Energy Voice Out Loud in paid partnership with Orsted. We are leading the global energy conversation, analysing Scotland's offshore wind sector, particularly what needs to happen to ensure a just and successful transition. The floating wind element of Scotland is one of the most keenly watched areas. Still in a nascent stage, the technology allows developers to position turbines in deeper waters where the wind speeds tend to be stronger. Scotland is already home to two floating wind farms, Equinor's High Wind Scotland and the Kincardine Offshore Wind Farm near Aberdeen, and many more are going to spring up in the coming years. I'm Hamish Penman, a digital journalist at Energy Voice, and joining me today is my co-host Mary Dudley, Head of Market Development UK at Orsted. We also have two special guests for this episode, Carlos Martin, Chief Executive of Blue Float Energy, and Joanne Alday, Strategic Business Development Manager at Port of Cromarty Firth. Many thanks to you all for joining us today. Starting with you, Mary, how big is the floating wind sector likely to be in Scotland? So floating wind has an exciting future in Scotland. As you said, floating wind farms can be positioned in deeper water than is possible with fixed bottom um, foundation designs. That provides access to stronger and and more consistent wind. And that greater flexibility when siting a project also then allows turbines to be placed further away from shore, um, minimising the visual impacts and, and addressing concerns of other users of the sea. Floating wind has huge potential for Scotland, a country with around a quarter of Europe's total offshore wind resource, um, much of which is over deeper water. Um, and having grown up there, I can confidently say it's definitely very windy. Um, so Scotland can make the most of that. In addition to that, um, Scotland should be in a position to really benefit from the development of floating wind because of the subsea expertise that already exists in the oil and gas sector. And that really does give Scotland a, a great advantage. Yeah, that windy element certainly uh, particularly readily felt on a, on a cold day up here. Carlos, on that kind of uh, skills element that Scotland has, how much is that going to kind of play into to the the establishment of the floating the floating wind industry in Scotland. Let, let me uh, quickly introduce Blue Float to give a little bit of context of the expertise we are bringing. We are a global developer of offshore wind farms with a specific focus on floating wind. And we have a, a presence in the UK, but in other markets in Europe as well, like France, Spain, Italy, plus uh, other geographies like New Zealand or Australia. As, as Mary was commenting, the opportunity in, in Scotland is huge. But it's also a very challenging process that we have ahead of us because we we have a, a new industry to build. And in that sense, I think it's fair to say that Scotland has its own challenges, but has also very strong skills to leverage. Um, the fact that it's, a, it's home to a very strong oil and gas industry with very skilled uh, workers is definitely an asset that needs to be leveraged. Strong universities and training centers are also part of that environment, and it's something we definitely count on. But at the same time, uh, there's there's big challenges. Uh, infrastructure is, is one of them. Boats need to be rearranged to prepare for the floating wind challenge. And in that sense, coupling the right strategy between floater selection, existing infrastructure, existing skills, will be critical for the success of this of this venture. Absolutely, and coming to you now, Joanne. What's happening up in the in the Highlands at Port of Cromarty first to make sure that you're kind of ready to to leverage this opportunity as and when it comes. We're very fortunate in the Cromarty Firth in that we have one of the deepest ports in the whole of the UK. We're also very well located for the sites both in the Scotwind leasing round and also the newly announced Intog leasing round. So we are also open 24-7, 365 days a year because we don't have any air restrictions, tidal restrictions, sandbanks, that kind of thing that can impact uh, access and egress to other ports. So 
We have invested significant amounts of money in the Cromarty Firth, over £100 million in the last 10 years to develop facilities and build the track record for the supply chain. So the Cromarty Firth itself actually has the best track record in Scotland in terms of supporting the offshore wind industry. And a number of partners have been working together to support and deliver those projects. So we're now looking at building on that expertise and that track record. Uh, We need to expand. As Carlos said, these turbines are getting bigger and bigger all the time, fixed bottom wind as well as the floating wind opportunity. So we do need to expand our capacity and the sites within our region are all looking at doing that. We're also collaborating and looking at how best we can support the industry to deliver this pipeline of projects. It's a real step change in the number and the size of projects. So we believe that we need to collaborate in order to make sure that that can be a success for the industry. Definitely. And, and kind of looking at that Scotland point that you brought up, Mary, I'll come to you first on this, but also to bidding in Scotland with a, with a floating bid. Can you kind of tell us a wee bit about, uh, or as much as you can, I suppose, because we're still under a sensitive process, but what, what you can about Orsted's bid? Yeah, of course. And I'll kind of start by um, explaining why Orsted are interested in the floating market now. And we've been following the development of the market very closely without actively investing in in the market but we've been part of that journey through involvement in you know external industry bodies like the carbon trust floating wind joint industry project and the wind europe floating wind working group now the technology at a whole is still a very early r&d proof of concept phase but we recognize that in certain core markets such as scotland or us japan for example We see floating offshore wind um, as being a complementary technology to bottom fixed offshore wind. And from a technology perspective, it's still very early days and we do remain technology agnostic. But we do believe that floating wind can be commercialised within the next decade or so. Scotland gave us as an opportunity a great chance to step into that floating market. So as a company, we've entered bids in Scotland for a total of five projects. Three as Orsted alone, which include a mix of fixed and floating wind technologies, and two floating wind-only bids as part of our joint venture partnership with Falk Renewables and Blue Float Energy. And great, we have Carlos here with us today. So that floating consortium was was formed to bring together the industry-leading skills and experience from each of the partners in order to deliver a world-class floating offshore wind proposition for Scotland. And the partnership combines Orsted's track record and developing, constructing and operating utility scale, bottom fixed offshore wind, Blue Float Energy's knowledge and experience in developing, financing, executing floating wind projects, and then Falk Renewables track record in global project development, but most importantly, their community engagement and their local presence in Scotland um, through their onshore wind developments. So a great mix of different skills and capabilities. It would be remiss of me not to not to bring you in here, Carlos, and on, on what you kind of you bringing to the bringing to the table in terms of in terms of pedigree and, and in terms of what you're looking to to achieve in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as, as Mary was, was was commenting, floating wind is a very special subsector within the renewable space, and um, um, we have a strong view that floating wind is is very different from fixed bottom. It's it's quite uh, telling to see the global leader in offshore wind recognizing that and joining forces with a player that blue float which is of course much smaller in, in scale but which is bringing a specific expertise in uh, in floating offshore wind our team has um, experience in different floating projects i was myself 
project director for Winfoot Atlantic when I was working at TDP Renewables. That was the first floating project to uh, secure a, a bank financing structure. And to some extent, it, it, it uh, demonstrated that floating wind could be a commercial uh, technology as we are now observing in, in Scotland. There's quite a number of, of, of aspects we, we can talk about that makes floating wind quite, uh, quite unique, not least in terms of uh, uh, infrastructure facilities required, as uh, Joanne was commenting before. And that uh, is something we, uh, I think we, we managed to make quite visible in the applications we have uh, submitted together that have a very strong focus on proposing technology solutions and supply chain solutions specific for Scotland that would make those projects viable and cost competitive. Mario, on that fixed versus floating turbine kind of debate, I suppose we could call it, what what are kind of the pros of, of floating over fixed and, and kind of how do they differ significantly? Yeah, so we've touched on a few of these points already, but it generally floating provides access to deeper waters and, and challenging seabed conditions. So that expands the viable area of development, which is great. This generally means they can be located further from shore. So you have reduced visibility from shore. Um, and then when you're further from shore, generally the wind speeds are better. From a, a kind of construction perspective for fixed bottom, you need heavy lift vessels to install the foundations, transport and assemble all the parts on on, on site, direct the turbine. Um, But floating turbine platforms can be assembled in port and towed to site. And this, in time, can make it cheaper and and less weather dependent as well compared to the construction of, of fixed bottom sites. From an environmental perspective, the construction of floating wind farms, generally you can minimise the need for noisy piling um, installation that can uh, you know, affect fish and, and other marine mammals. And because they're further from shore, there's then less impact on the more fragile coastal ecosystem and landscape. And the final final benefit, I think, is that there's also then less impact on other marine users too, because you're, you're so far from shore. And Joanne, on the ma- manufacturing and fabrication point of a uh, fixed versus floating, what's kind of the, the big differences there? As Mari said, it's a very different port scenario in terms of requirements for floating wind versus fixed bottom wind. So in fixed bottom wind, we saw the vast majority of components being imported. There was some assembly and integration work that happened in UK ports. With floating wind, we expect that to be a far greater percentage because of the assembly and integration of the entire turbine taking place within ports and also the opportunity to manufacture the floating substructure within the UK. There was a a recent report by BVG that suggested we may need 15 manufacturing sites within the UK and, and six of those in Scotland for the different floating substructures that will be built out in the coming years. And that's in addition to the assembly and integration ports that are also required. So real opportunity here for Scotland. Carlos, as a, as a floating aficionado, why do you kind of see the big uh, sticking points here between between the two and the, perhaps the pros of one over the other? Yeah, well, I think Marianne and Joanne already covered all the critical points. I will highlight that um, there's an interesting debate about uh, the risk profile of uh, fixed bottom compared to floating wind. There is a general perception that floating wind is more risky, and that's simply because it's probably less mature. But I think there's good arguments to justify that floating wind will eventually be less risky than than fixed bottom. And let me give you just a couple of examples. One is site investigation. Contrary to fixed bottom, uh, you're not so reliant on having a 
very detailed understanding of the technical conditions on the site because you're less dependent on, on, on understanding those. There's more tolerance for variability of site conditions when you, when you use a floating structure. Uh, second example is one mentioned by, by Mary, which is uh, the possibility of towing the, the platforms to the shore, which reduces the impact of uh, potential impact on downtime of having to mobilize a, a Jacob vessels uh, like in, in fixed bottom uh, wind. So these are good examples that in my view would make floating wind less risky eventually than, than fixed bottom. Let me finish with mentioning an important aspect about floating, which is that it uh, offers Scotland an almost endless uh, source of energy. And this will allow not only to decarbonize power generation, but to uh, transform the whole industry and to uh, potentially position Scotland as a major exporter of uh, clean energy in different forms to the rest of Europe or the rest of the world. And Joanne, I imagine given Port Cromie's first proximity to, to many of these leasing sites, this must be music to your ears. Kind of what, what's the size of the prize in terms of what's been discussed by Mary and Carlos here in terms of you to the supply chain can cash in on? This is probably the biggest set of infrastructure and construction projects that Scotland and possibly the UK is going to see in the next 10 to 20 years. So the size of the prize is significant. And as Carlos mentioned, we have an opportunity to establish a new supply chain for floating wind. The the fixed bottom wind supply chain is already full. So where we saw with fixed bottom wind, many of the components were brought in to Scotland, so they were they were imported. We have an opportunity if we move quickly to establish those supply chains differently this time and increase the amount of local content, which mirrors the intention within the renewable sector deal that's been signed between the renewable sector, uh, renewable industry, and the uh, UK government. And, and and staying with you, Joanne, for a minute on on job creation and also the ability for. Uh, people to transition across, particularly from oil and gas. What does floating wind perhaps bring that uh, other renewables technologies don't, I suppose, in in being able to absorb those jobs and and yield new ones? The job creation is an interesting conundrum. Uh, We are seeing the managed decline of North Sea oil and gas, um, which is very well publicised. We also in our region have the decommissioning of Dune Ray, the nuclear facility, which will see, again, a large number of very skilled individuals that uh, may be available to join the renewable sector. In terms of job numbers, we don't realistically think that all of the people from oil and gas and all of the people from the nuclear sector in the north of Scotland are going to find jobs within the renewable sector. I don't think that's realistic. I think there are a number of jobs and there are some very valuable skilled jobs. And for people that want to make that transition into clean energy and into renewables, I think there will be some really exciting jobs. But we do need to look at other sectors like the hydrogen sector, again, where the skills from oil and gas can directly be brought in and the same from the nuclear industry into that green energy um, so that those skills can be used as well. We do need to be mindful that we are going to need a lot of people, don't get me wrong, but I don't think it's going to be on the size and scale that we saw with North Sea oil and gas. Um, I think we need to be be very honest about that at this point. 
Can I just just add on the point you made there, Joanne, around the skills? Um, I, I think there are strong skill institutions already in Scotland and we don't want to reinvent the wheel there. Um, as a company, we, we, yeah, we plan to work with existing skills bodies, universities, further education colleges um, to ensure that we have the skills that, that we and, and the industry needs from a floating perspective. And I can give an example of, of how we as a company work in Grimsby and in Barrow um, with further education colleges. We design apprenticeship programmes and we plan to do something very similar in Scotland. And we will also work with the industry to ensure that the energy passport programme goes ahead. And this, this recognises existing skills in offshore energy production to enable workers to transfer I- into the industry. Uh, I think it's important to highlight that our consortium with Falkorsted and, and Bluefoot Energy has, has partnered with Energy Skills Partnership Scotland for the, this very important challenge of developing training capabilities to provide the workforce required for uh, constructing uh, floating offshore wind farms in Scotland. I think perhaps one of the most exciting opportunities for the workforce and also, also for businesses, we sometimes forget the business opportunities in here, is that Scotland will probably be one of the first countries in the world to be building out commercial scale floating wind farms and probably the same for the green hydrogen industry. So we have a genuine opportunity to learn lessons, to build those industries here and then export that expertise and those technologies to other countries and help them decarbonise. I think we shouldn't underestimate how exciting those jobs are going to be for people coming into the industry. You know, this this genuinely is an opportunity to decarbonize the world uh, if we play it right. I fully agree. I think the, the what we can see when you take a, a look at um, the broader European market is that there is an increasing number of floating projects being proposed and developed across different geographies. And the supply chain to provide all the equipment needed for those projects simply doesn't exist today across Europe. So Scotwin provides a unique opportunity to be a first mover in this industry. And um, I think it's important not to look only to the vast amount of, of jobs that can be created through Scotwin itself. I think it's going to be an attraction project to, uh, on the one hand, position Scotland for exporting those capabilities for future projects across Europe, and also as a transformation driver for the broader Scottish industry across green, we talk about about, about green hydrogen, but there's a multiple set of uh, industries that need to decarbonize and that will, that will benefit from a vast amount of green power production in Scotland. Definitely. And I think that's a very nice, uh, buoyant, optimistic point to leave it on for this segment before we bring it all crashing back down to earth in the second part. We'll be back after a short break. Orsted is one of the world's largest renewable energy companies and in 2021 was ranked the most sustainable energy company in the world for the third consecutive year. With more than 30 years of experience, we are the global leader in offshore wind, with 7.6 gigawatts already installed across Europe, the USA and Asia Pacific. But we're just getting started and hope to invest a further £12 billion in Scotland alone in the next decade. We are taking tangible action to help create a world which runs entirely on green energy, leveraging our capabilities and insights to help countries and companies in their green transformations as we accelerate the fight against climate change together. Join us on the journey at orsted.co.uk. Welcome back to Gigawaters. 
the kind of cost aspect of, of floating wind is a particular sticking point at the moment, certainly in comparison to fixed bottom. Mary, how do we bring that down? Is it a case of just kind of scaling up and it will come down naturally from there or is there a bit more to it? You're absolutely right, Hamish. Um, so floating generation costs are currently about double those of, of bottom fixed. Um, but we do believe this will fall as technology advances and supply chains improve. And if you think about the cost journeys of other renewable technologies, so solar, um, onshore wind, and then bottom fixed offshore wind, it's it's pretty crazy. And it, it's now cheaper to deploy those technologies than fossil fuel derived power in, in most parts of the world. The cost of offshore wind has, has fallen by over 60% in the last decade. And the cost reduction journey for floating will happen much faster than it did for bottom fixed because it's already able to benefit from the advances in turbine technology and um, operation and maintenance innovations. And the maturity of the broader offshore wind sector um, means that the, the floating industry will benefit from kind of a lower cost of capital than for bottom fixed in than bottom fix at the same stage of commercial maturity but for floating you, you you need you know clear and ambitious political targets and obviously we have the UK ambition of 40 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030 off which at least one gigawatt will come from floating you need innovation you need competition but we do believe it's going to happen much more quickly than it did for fixed bottom and, and Carlos this is an established floating wind player. How do you see that kind of that cost curve panning out, um, particularly in the kind of coming years? Do you see a, do you see a sharp fall on the on the horizon at all? No, I think the future is very promising, as as Mary was uh, was pointing out. The starting point is already quite good um, if you consider the current cost level of floating wind, given the um, uh, amount of installed capacity. That's already a lower cost level than fixed bottom when uh, fixed bottom had the same amount of install capacity a few years ago. And we've seen the same trend across the different renewable technologies, uh, a very uh, fast cost reduction uh, with increased capacity. When you go to the details, uh, it's pretty evident there's, there's many drivers for this cost reduction. The first one already pointed by, by Mary is the uh, scale of the turbines. The economy of scales uh, with uh, the size of a turbine is very apparent already in fixed bottom offshore wind. It's even more so in floating wind uh, from our point of view. The second important factor is the scale of the developments. When we developed Windford Atlantic in, in Portugal, the cost more than halved that of a 2 megawatt prototype, uh, which was installed a few years before. And that was thanks to turbine size going from 2 to 8 megawatt, but also from producing three units as opposed to one. And I always said that the biggest challenge of the project was the, 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 the small scale. It will have been much easier and much cheaper to produce a 100 or 200 megawatt project than just a 25 megawatt project. Scotland is being quite visionary in, in, in developing gigawatt projects. But it's also important to realize that there needs to be some stepping stone in between. And I think programs like INTOC or um, uh, the Celtic Sea uh, tender process, which is planned by the Crown State uh, in, the, in, the, in the Celtic Sea, will be very useful short to medium term uh, stepping stones to help the industry develop and set the basis for um, a, a faster cost reduction. Definitely. And, and, and Joanne, on the, from the, coming from the supply side, what, what what can kind of be done in in that region to to bring the, to help to bring the costs down? I suppose. 
We're really looking at the industrialization of the manufacturing and the, and the assembly and integration. So whereas with Floating Wind to date, as Carlos said, a lot of the projects have been small demonstrator projects. When we move to the gigawatt scale, then we need really to be having all of the advances in manufacturing that you would see in any other sector that makes it slicker and more efficient and more cost effective. So there's some of the drivers that we're looking at within the Cromarty Firth to see how you would put that manufacturing supply chain together. One of the major cost centres for offshore wind developers is vessels, uh, and it's very important that they can keep the vessels coming in and out without any delays. So that, that again, is something that we're looking at within the Cromarty Firth to say, we know we have no air and tidal restrictions and, and typically no weather restrictions, but how how can we speed that up and make that even more efficient. And I know some of the developers are looking at extending their construction windows as well, so whether they can operate in some of the months that they wouldn't typically operate. They would normally typically install within a summer season, but you know if the, the technologies are there and the uh, supply chain can support installation outside of those months, then can they use those months as well and, and better use those vessels? So there's all kinds of conversations happening in and around the supply chain to just make everything that little bit slicker, which should then drive down cost. Mary, just on that port side, there are concerns being flagged previously that a bottleneck could occur as all these projects come to fruition at once. Is that something that you're looking into and, and looking to kind of mitigate the the impact of? You're right, Hamish, there, there, there is potential for, for a bottleneck there, but we do believe that if the pipeline is clear in terms of the, the, the number of projects that are coming through and the investments are made in the right places, then I, I think that's a problem that can be solved. Definitely. Just sticking on that, uh, the, the cost point, Carlos, with the fact that there are so many oil and gas skills in Scotland, is that going to help in terms of bringing the cost down and that there's expertise, consultancy, all those kind of things already in place for... Yes, for floating um, oil and gas or for, for offshore oil and gas, but it seems like a lot. there's a lot of crossover there that, mm. could, that could aid the floating wind sector. Yeah, the, the skills from oil and gas definitely help. My view is that they will be especially helpful among technicians for fabrication, for operation and maintenance. But it's important also to highlight the big differences between oil and gas and floating offshore wind, which... Uh, maybe not always apparent. Oil and gas platforms are unique platforms that have as top priority securing a very high level of, of safety, uh, costs being important, but being probably a, a second priority. In floating offshore wind, you have to produce in series. You don't produce one single platform. You have to produce quite a number of them. And understanding the challenges of serial production, cost reduction, Health and safety is, of, of course, also top priority, but it needs to be adjusted to the nature of, uh, of, uh, of, of the offshore wind, which is somehow different from, from oil and gas. There's no pollution, nobody living on the platforms. So all that needs to be taken into account. So when it comes to the design of the structures, uh, there's all these differences that need to be taken into account. From a dynamic loads point of view, it's also very different. You don't have a piece of equipment moving on top of the platform is in oil and gas. And here, that has major impacts on the design of the, of the floater. So all that needs to be taken into account. And that's why we believe that floating offshore wind is different from fixed bottom. It's also very different from oil and gas. It's a specific industry that requires 
uh, its own uh, set of, of skills and experience to be successful. It's worth highlighting the differences from a port requirement perspective as well of, of the difference between fixed bottom and, and floating in, in that you know the floating foundation um, structures they don't stack in the same way as monopiles and due to their their shape you know they're they're spatially less dense they require significantly larger areas for the fabrication and storage and so that you know the ports need to kind of be able to account for that through investment and I know Joanne will be able to talk more about this but the ports then need those large spaces in the water next to the quayside as well as access at the port mouth so th- there are some very significant differences between the port requirements for fixed bottom growth and floating uh, offshore wind growth that um, I know everyone is, is acutely aware of in Scotland and there's already a lot of work going on to to figure out how how those ports can develop to accommodate the, the significant pipeline. Joanne I mean are, are you kind of balancing a foot in both camps at the moment with a view to going kind of a full floating as the fixed bottom um, kind of potential fills up is, is, is that kind of your, what's your kind of strategy on this so the ports are in a really interesting position at the moment uh, and for the whole supply chain with fixed bottom wind we've had the scenario where you had a really large project that came along and took up every bit of land you could possibly give them uh, for maybe 18 months and then they would disappear and that land would sit empty. Uh, And that's the the pattern that we've seen over the last few years with fixed bottom wind as it's been developing. We're now looking at a potential scenario, particularly between 2028-2032, where everybody, it seems, wants to build out their Scotwind projects within that four-year period. And as a consequence, there is not enough infrastructure to do that. There's not enough vessels, there's not enough cranes, there's not enough port infrastructure. You know, there are bottlenecks throughout the supply chain. Neither of those scenarios works for the supply chain. Neither of them is sustainable. Neither of them gives you a constant flow of jobs and projects. So we're hoping that there can be a halfway house and a little bit more flexibility The one risk in that is that the industry puts so much pressure on the government in particular and on other ports that investments are made all over the place. And we have new infrastructure going in in places that it doesn't make long term strategic commercial sense to have these large scale areas of land. The land that's required for offshore wind and and floating offshore wind is massive. You know, when you look at the laydown areas that we have in the Cromarty Firth, they are vast. And we still need to put more in to accommodate these sectors. To enable that to happen in lots of other ports, you're talking about hundreds of millions of pounds being spent on infrastructure that once these projects have been constructed, there is no use for. Now, I would argue in a green renewable energy sector, it does not make sense environmentally to be building infrastructure and reclaiming land from the sea in most instances that is not going to be required in 20 years. It's just going to sit empty. You know, we've we've been there before. We've made that mistake before. I'm sure there's a smarter way to do it by working more closely together and looking at how do we build this out strategically and we make the the necessary investments, yes, but we don't end up investing absolutely everywhere and then building up supply chains that are not sustainable and building up false promises and false hopes for the communities in those areas. I just don't think that's a fair way to do it. And as I say, we've made that mistake before. So let's not go down that path again. And leveraging on what Joanne is commenting, which I, I, I would tend to agree, 
here's where the uh, experience and, and knowledge about floating offshore also comes into play. There's, uh, contrary to, to fixed bottom, there's a vast uh, choice of, of technologies in the market at different levels of technology development from which you have to pick up uh, your choices. At Bluefloat, we don't have any specific uh, tie to any technology developer. We remain neutral, not agnostic, because we have a strong view on what we like, what we don't like, but we, we remain neutral. And as, as Joan was commenting, understanding the supply chain available is a big element in the choice of a technology. Not all the technologies have the same requirements in terms of port facilities, in terms of key uh, bearing capacity, loadout requirements, uh, storage, and so on and so forth. So selecting the right technology specific for Scotland is a, is a major decision where uh, the floating wing expertise comes into play. The other aspect which is very important is optimizing the, the supply chain and the, and the installation process. Depending on how you optimize these processes, you might require more or less areas, for example, in at the port. Understanding the differences between wet storage and dry storage, for example, is also very important. There's pros and cons. And um, that also plays an important role in optimizing port facilities. So as you can see, it's a very complex process where you have to consider many different options and where experience has a major role in, in optimizing the whole process. It seems like collaboration and, and early collaboration would be the real kind of key in, in, in addressing a lot of these problems. Mary, is that something that Orsted are cognizant of and, and, and doing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I think we have to be um, very honest with ourselves that it's the this, the offshore wind market as a whole and, and particularly the, the opportunity in Scotland is only going to come to fruition if we can collaborate. And whilst that can be challenging because it sometimes means cooperating with competitors, I, I think everyone's of the view that the, the size of the prize is, is too big for, for us to work individually on this and it needs to be done yeah collectively and there must be a real incentive to kind of get it right now given that areas suitable for fixed bottom are going to fill up they might fill up incredibly quickly so kind of nailing a plan and and a, a makeshift model that can be replicated again and again is going to be key and and, and joanne i'm sure that's something that you're incredibly cognizant of up in um port of cromity firth absolutely and building on what Mari was saying it- we're already starting to collaborate with competitors. The demands that this pipeline is putting on the supply chain, none of us can achieve this on our own. We can't deliver this on our own. We have to work together. And I think we are seeing that from the developers as well. We are seeing that increased certainty of the supply chain. And I think that will increase after the Scott Wind Awards are made in January uh, and after the CFD announcement, the auction in the summer next year as well. I think we'll have the supply chain will have a much greater visibility of these projects coming through and that will help with the future planning, the future expansions, etc. But we're already collaborating within the Cromarty Firth. We have a, a consortium called Opportunity Cromarty Firth that's been working together now for nearly two years to try and optimise the size of this opportunity for the region and also for the country and make sure that we are as organised as possible and allowing the developers that are going to be operating within our region to kind of plug in to some of the projects that we're doing, whether it's green hydrogen or skills or research and development, so that we can make sure the communities benefit the most from these projects as they as they come through. Sure, definitely. I think that collaboration point is is obviously so important. Kind of across so much of what 
has happened, what is going to happen in, in terms of offshore wind and, and its development in Scotland. And I think it's a, a really nice point to, to leave kind of today's discussion on. So kind of thank you very much, Mary. Thank you, Carlos. And thank you, Joanne, for taking the time to join us today. It was a really, really fascinating chat. A lot to ponder. And I'm sure it's going to be, well, all the signs are on the wall. The floating is going to be a, a really exciting industry in Scotland and one for one for lots of people to tap into and to, and to keep an eye on. Thanks go to our listeners as well if you if you're taking the time to join us today. If you'd like to share your thoughts as well about what's been discussed today, you can you can find us on social media or you could drop us an email at outloud at energyvoice.com. Uh, don't forget to tune into our weekly podcast episode as well. The last one was a, a nice Christmas quiz, so you've got a, a fairly anarchic episode to get your teeth into there. Um, and then next year we'll look to pick up again with picking apart the uh, the stories from the week. Uh, if you're yet to do so as well, please do subscribe free to Energy Voice Out Loud on your podcast app of choice and listen out for more episodes of Gigawaters going live soon. I'm Hamish Penman and thank you for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com. Sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.